Section 9 of The Science History of the Universe, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Abai in July 2016. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 3. Edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Physics. Chapter 5. The speed of light. Among all the properties of light, none is more striking than its speed. Previous to the 17th century, this had always been supposed to be infinite, and the discovery of the gradual propagation of light is one of the most wonderful achievements of that wonderful period in the history of physics, the Renaissance. The first attempt to measure the speed of light was made by Galileo, he ascertained the time for one person to signal with a lamp to another and receive back the signal. The experiment was tried at night, when the two observers were close together, and again when they were nearly a mile apart. If a difference in time could be detected, then light would travel with finite velocity. Galileo was not able from his experiments to settle the question. About thirty years later, a young Dane, Olaf Römer, was observing the eclipses of Jupiter's moons. It was noticed that the times of revolution of these moons in their orbits were not the same at all periods of the year, and were greater than the average when the apparent size of Jupiter was diminishing. Considering it in the highest degree improbable that the actual motions should be affected with any inequality of this sort, Römer became convinced that the observed irregularities must be explained on the supposition that the velocity of light is finite. He said that the discrepancy could be accounted for by assuming that it took time for light to come from Jupiter to the Earth. On November 9, 1676, an eclipse took place at 5 hours 35 minutes 45 seconds, while by computation it should have been at 5 hours 25 minutes 45 seconds. On November 9, 1676, an eclipse took place at 5 hours 35 minutes 45 seconds, while by computation it should have been at 5 hours 25 minutes 45 seconds. On November 22nd, he explained his theory to the French Academy more fully and said that it required light 22 minutes to cross the Earth's orbit. The more correct value is now known to be 16 minutes and 36 seconds. Like the news of so many other great discoveries, Römer's announcement fell upon deaf ears. It was 50 years before the scientific world recognized the truth and the value of his contribution to knowledge. Römer computed the velocity of light to be 309,000 kilometers, about 186,000 miles, per second. Subsequent determinations made by astronomers and physicists have corrected this computation but little. The most accurate estimates of this figure are those made by Jean-Léon Foucault, inventor of the gyroscope and originator of the Foucault pendulum, in France, and Albert R. Michelson of the United States Navy in America. 
the speed found by michelson as the result of more than a hundred trials lasting over some two months of daily experimentation averaged two hundred ninety nine thousand seven hundred forty kilometers or one hundred eighty six thousand three hundred miles per second the speed of light in a vacuum is estimated as but slightly greater than in air the velocity of light in water was a pregnant question in determining the true nature of light the discussion of this problem belongs to very recent times it shows what remarkable influence the opinions of isaac newton exercised and illustrates how easy it is even for scientific men to take sides in a discussion where only truth is sought according to the adherents of the newtonian school the speed of light in water a denser medium than air should be greater than its speed in air just as the speed of sound in iron is greater than in wood but if light be a vibrational phenomenon the speed should be less in water than in air this was the fact which the exponents of the undulatory theory of whom thomas young in england and fresnel malus and foucault in france were the leading lights were called upon to demonstrate if the newtonian theory was to be refuted foucault took up the idea constructed a sort of light siren which made more than ten thousand revolutions by a second and reflecting a beam of light showed a deviation of the ray upon a mirror at a distance this deviation he found to be greater when the ray of light was passed through water and his experiment gave conclusive proof that the newtonian theory of light was false the speed of light in water was found to be just about three-fourths of the speed in air that light in passing from air through a dense medium such as water or glass suffers a retardation was a natural inference that a distant light gives less illumination than one which is near was early a fact of common observation the exact extent to which distance would affect the amount of light received however is not so generally known the earth receives a certain amount of light from the sun an amount varying with the latitude and the seasons at first blush it might seem as if this light would increase in direct proportion to the nearness of the sun as if supposing the earth was half as far away the light would be twice as great and the heat received on the earth would only be doubled that such is not the case is now known to every student of the elements of physics it has been estimated indeed that if the earth were moved halfway from its present position toward the sun the whole face of nature would be changed life as it now exists would be impossible no trees grass or any verdure would cover the face of the earth water would be unknown existing only as a prodigious enveloping veil of vapour through which the sun's rays would pass with considerable loss of energy enough would be transmitted however so that metals such as tin and lead and even zinc would be liquids mercury a gas sulphur a boiling fluid mass an intense glare would illuminate the glowing rocks and naked soil a light the like of which cannot be conceived by aid of any comparison with the physical world of today and yet the sun would then be distant more than forty millions of miles from the surface of the earth 
how bright must be the illumination which the sun casts upon the little planet mercury so much nearer to him than the earth it is utterly impossible to imagine there is no standard of comparison yet mercury is distant thirty-seven million miles from the sun the sense of perspective is a universal faculty a ship grows continually smaller in approaching the horizon a nearby fly crossing the path of vision looks larger than an eagle a penny held close to the eye will obscure the world light as before observed travels in straight lines from every illuminated point from a lighted candle rays of light radiate in every direction straight away from the flame the artist familiarly represents the light of a candle by an illuminated circle around it which rapidly shades from white to dark grey or black shadow this illuminated circle represents in reality a hollow sphere or shell of light and each radiant vibration coming from the source of light is spread over the surface of the sphere it is a well-known fact that if the radius of such a sphere be made to increase the area of the sphere will also increase but much faster than the radius in fact as the square of the letter the surface of a two-inch ball is four times as great as that of an inch ball the surface of a three-inch ball is nine times as great as that of an inch ball similarly the light which from a point within would reach the surface of a hollow sphere one foot in diameter would be spread over nine times the same area if the radius of the sphere were three feet hence each point on the surface of the larger sphere would receive only one-ninth as much light the amount or intensity of light then varies not exactly as the inverse of the distance but inversely as the square of the distance from the source of light in general as any light wave advances its energy is being distributed over a surface which increases directly as the square of the distance the wave has travelled it must be noted however that this law of intensity applies only to the direct light from a luminous body for the total illumination on a given surface is usually very much increased by the light reflected from nearby non-luminous bodies hence it is that white walls and furnishings add so much to the total amount of light in a room the law of the intensity of light is evidently analogous to that of gravity where it was seen that a pound weight at the surface of the earth four thousand miles from its centre would weigh only one quarter pounds at the distance of four thousand miles from the surface eight thousand miles from its centre or twice as far away as at the surface it is this strangely persistent law of inverse squares which more than any other fact of physics points to the ultimate unification of all force under one head the law holds true for gravity electric and magnetic attraction and repulsion light sound heat and so-called radiant heat together with numerous other less fundamental physical relationships an ingenious yet extremely simple instruments for measuring the amount of light received from a given source was invented about the end of the eighteenth century by an american benjamin thompson afterward count rumford in front of a ground glass screen he fixed an opaque rod 
placing a bright lamp and a candle at such distances from the rod that the shadows thrown by each light upon the screen appeared equally bright. Measuring the distance of each light from the shadows cast, he found the lamp to be four times as far away as the candle, from which, by the law of inverse squares, he perceived that the lamp was twice as bright as the candle. Some fifty years later, another light-measuring instrument was produced by the famous chemist Robert Wilhelm Bunsen. This admirably simple device consisted of a sheet of white paper with a grease spot on it. The experiment may easily be made by anyone. If the paper is equally illuminated from both sides, the grease spot will be hardly visible, but if the light upon one side is made ever so little brighter than upon the other, the spot will at once appear on the darker side brighter, and on the brighter side darker than the rest of the paper. The obvious reason of this is that the matte surface of the white paper reflects back more and transmits less of the light which falls upon it than does the part covered with a film of grease. If now a standard light can be placed on one side of this paper, any other light whose candle power is to be determined may be shifted back on the other side until the grease spot is no longer visible when by measuring the distances of the two lights from the paper screen, the relative intensity may easily be determined. Incandescent electric lamps, arc lights, and in fact all common illuminants are measured in candle power. One British standard candle power is the rate at which light is emitted by a flame of a sperm candle weighing one-sixth of a pound and burning 120 grains per hour. The amount of light from such a source, however, has been shown to vary as much as 20%, hence the standard is somewhat unsatisfactory. Ordinary electric glow lamps are equivalent to 16 standard candles and are therefore called 16CP candle power lamps. Other varieties of photometer light measurers have subsequently been invented, one of which, Wheatstone's, produces very beautiful luminous effects. Similar in many ways to the measurement of the light of the sun is the accurate estimation of solar heat. In 1883, Samuel Pierpont Langley invented the bolometer, briefly described as an exquisitely delicate thermopile. Langley's invention was a part of his careful and elaborate preparation for that remarkable trip to the, then almost unknown, summit of Mount Whitney in Southern California, where the summits of the Sierra Nevada, rising precipitously in the dry air to a height of nearly 15,000 feet over the Mojave Desert to the eastward, furnished a suitable location for the study of the influence of the Earth's atmosphere upon the radiations from the sun. I spent nearly a year, says Langley, before ascending the mountain, in inventing and perfecting the new instrument which I have called the bolometer, or ray measurer. The principle on which it is founded is the same as that employed by my late lamented friend Sir William Siemens for measuring temperatures at the bottom of the sea, which is that a smaller electric current flows through a warm wire than a cold one. One great difficulty was to make the conducting wire very thin and yet continuous, 
and for this purpose almost endless experiments were made, among other substances pure gold having been obtained by chemical means in a plate so thin that it transmitted a sea-green light through the solid substance of the metal. This proving unsuitable, I learned that iron had been rolled of extraordinary thinness in a contest of skill between some English and American ironmasters, and, procuring some, I found that fifteen thousand of the iron plates they had rolled, laid one on the other, would make but one English inch. Out of this the first bolometers were made. The iron is now replaced by platinum, in wires, or rather tapes, from a two-thousandth to a twenty-thousandth of an inch thick, all but invisible, being far finer than a human hair. This thread acts as though sensitive, like a nerve laid bare to every indication of heat and cold. It is, then, a sort of sentient thing. What the eye sees as light, it feels as heat, and what the eye sees as a narrow band of darkness, the Fraunhofer line, this feels as a narrow belt of cold, so that, when moved parallel to itself and the Fraunhofer lines down the spectrum, it registers their presence. Langley's fascinating story of his experimental trip to Mount Whitney, told in the records of the Royal Institution, is full of thrilling imaginative touches. A few lines may serve to show something of the immense difficulties which he had to overcome in getting his results. He writes, We commenced our slow toil northward with a thermometer at 110 degrees in the shade, if any shade there be in the shadeless desert, which seems to be chiefly inhabited by rattlesnakes of an ashen-grey colour and a peculiarly venomous bite. There is no water, save at the rarest intervals, and the soil at a distance seems as though strewed with sheets of salt, which aids the delusive show of the mirage. At last, after a seemingly interminable journey, we pitched our tents and fell to work, for you remember we must have two stations, a low and a high one, to compare the results, and here we laboured three weeks in almost intolerable heat, the instruments having to be constantly swept clear of the red desert dust which the hot wind brought. Close by these tents a thermometer covered by a single sheet of glass and surrounded by wool rose to 237 degrees in the sun, and sometimes in the tent, which was darkened for the study of separate rays, the heat was absolutely beyond human endurance. Finally our apparatus was taken apart and packed in small pieces on the backs of mules, who were to carry it by a ten days' journey through the mountains to the other side of the rocky wall, which, though only ten or twelve miles distant, arose miles above our heads, and, leaving these mule trains to go with the escort by this longer route, I started with a guide by a nearer way to those white gleams in the upper skies that had daily tantalized us below in the desert with suggestions of delicious, unattainable cold. That desert sun had tanned our faces to a leather-like brown, and the change to the cooler air as we ascended was at first delightful. But the colder it grew, the more the sun burnt the skin, quite literally burnt, I may say, so that by the end of the third day my face and hands, case-hardened as I thought in the desert, began to look as if they had been seared with red-hot irons, here in the cold, 
where the thermometer had fallen to freezing at night, and still as we ascended the paradoxical effect increased. The colder it grew about us, the hotter the sun blazed above. It almost seemed as though sunbeams up here were different things, and contained something which the air filters out before they reach us in our customary abodes. Radiation here is increased by the absence of water vapor too, and, on the whole, this intimate personal experience fell in almost too well with our anticipations that the air is an even more elaborate trap to catch the sunbeams than had been surmised, and that this effect of selective absorption and radiation was intimately connected with that change of the primal energies and primal color of the sun which we had climbed toward it to study. We suffered from cold, the ice forming three inches deep in the tents at night, and from mountain sickness, but we were too busy to pay much attention to bodily comfort and worked with desperate energy to utilize the remaining autumn days, which were all too short. Here, as below, the sunlight entered a darkened tent and was spread into a spectrum which was explored throughout by the bolometer, measuring on the same separate rays which we had studied below in the desert, all of which were different up here and having grown stronger, but in very different proportions. The delicately constructed bolometer of Langley has been brought in comparatively recent years to very high perfection, so as to record a change of temperature of one ten millionth of a degree centigrade. Professor C. B. Boyes in 1888 constructed a similar instrument capable of indicating so minute quantities of radiant heat that in the absence of atmospheric absorption the heat radiated from a candle two miles away would be distinctly registered. A still more perfect instrument lately completed in America, similar to the radiometer of Dr. Crookes, reached a marvelous degree of sensitiveness to radiant energy. Experiments were made on the heat of a candle situated 2,000 feet from the concave mirror which focused its rays upon the instrument. The feeble radiations of the candle at this great distance sufficed to turn the indicator through nearly a hundred scale divisions, and even the face of an observer when placed in the position before occupied by the candle produced a deflection of twenty-five scale divisions. As a tenth of a single scale division could readily be observed, it will be seen, to speak figuratively, that with this radiometer one might note the approach of a friend while yet some miles distant, merely by the glow of his countenance. End of section 9